take that Bible this morning. I'm ready for you in John 15. John 15, and I want to look at that section with you in verses, let me go ahead and read 12 through 17. Chapter 15, 12 through 17. And our theme this morning, obviously, as you will hear in the reading, is on the friendship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the third part in our pillars of our relationship with Christ, and we'll bring you up to speed. But follow with me, 15, verse 12, you follow along. This is my commandment, Jesus said, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in the, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. It's a tremendous section of scripture. You see that section there at least in verse 12 where he he tells us there, excuse me, in verse 13, that one lays down his life for his friends. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. And then in verse 15, I have called you friends. And as I begin to think about that subject of friends, I, I begin to think about some of the, maybe the modern music, both now and from years past and and of just as Jesus would define love for us last week together and what true love does, it gives away itself, it sacrifices on the behalf of another as he laid down his life for us, he gave us a true definition of love. Well, here there's a true definition of friendship. And his definition of friendship cuts against and across all what the world would say that it is. I think of that song, do you remember years ago, maybe some of you who are older, the song, You've Got a Friend. <laughs> do you remember that? How many of you remember that song? Uh, by James Taylor, um, excuse me mentioning that in the pulpit, but uh, you remember that one, when you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand and nothing, oh nothing is going right, just close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest nights, you just call out my name. But I really want to kind of sing that part right there. Um, and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Oh, baby, that's what James Taylor says. Uh, don't you know, and it's not about, but bout, winter, spring, summer, uh, or fall. Hey, now, all you got to do is call, and I'll be there, yes. Yay, yay, yay. Um, you've got a friend. You've got a friend. I mean, this is kind of the banter that has come down over the years. That's the secular version. The Christian version, many years back in the 80s, was by a guy, do you remember this one? By Michael W. Smith. Packing up the dreams God planted in the fertile soil of you. Can't believe the hopes he's granted. 
means a chapter in your life is through. But we'll keep you close as always. It won't even seem you've gone. Because your hearts in big and small ways will keep the love that keeps us strong. And then you remember that. And friends are friends forever if the Lord is what? The Lord of them. And that seemed to be like a big hit in the 80s. Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never because the welcome will not end. Though it's hard to let you go to the Father's hands, we know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. That song was played at my prom. I don't know why this popped up into my mind this week. It was played at my prom, and it came on, and I just, I thought, okay, I was just watching the screen because the song was in the background of the prom. I don't even know if they called it a prom. They might have called it a junior-senior banquet. And and in the midst of that song coming up over the speakers, they were showing slides of the senior class that would be graduating the next month. And, you know, they were showing all the highlights of the year, which was kind of fun, and showing all the highlights athletically, all the different things that took place. And I, I was watching, and then all of a sudden, the, the song came to a close that a life's, lifetime's not too long to look as friends. And I looked out. And I just remembered all the girls were crying, you know, um, because of the memories. And I thought, why are they crying? I'm graduating, you know. And, uh, but I remember that song. And so this theme of friendship is all over the place, just as the theme last week of love was all over the place. In fact, in classical literature, Aristotle said it this way to a nobleman, quote, there applies the true saying, that he does all things for the sake of his friends. And Aristotle said, and if he need be, he gives his life for them. There's much written in literature on this. It was the Epicurean uh, philosopher by the name of Pleonides who said, for the most beloved of his relatives or friends, he was ready to offer his neck. And so this is a rich, rich biblical theme. But as always here at Grace Church of the Valley, we're going to define things biblically. We're going to define things theologically. You know, it's interesting when you think in the New Testament, the many different names and the many different titles that we are called in Scripture. Certainly can't go through all of them, but the Scripture would call us believers in Acts 5.14, it calls us beloved of God in Romans 1.7. In Romans 1.6, the Bible tells us that we are, we are titled the called. In John 1.12, we are identified as children of God. In other parts of the gospel, we are known as children of light as well as in Ephesians 5.8. In the book of Acts chapter 11, we're titled Christians. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're called disciples. In another part of the Gospel of Matthew, we're called the elect. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're called the, the godly. In Romans chapter 8, we're called the heirs of God. In Philippians chapter 2, we're called the lights of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're called living stones. In Ephesians 5, we're called members of his body. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're called slaves of Christ. 
In the book of Romans, we're called vessels of mercy. In the book of Acts, we're called saints. But maybe, just maybe, we're also called friend. And that may be the best of all. Jesus calls us here his friends. And maybe it would be enough for me just to open this sermon in this way to say and to ask you, are you a friend of Jesus Christ? Are you called that? Are you titled that? Are you a friend of Jesus Christ? Now, as we come into this text, don't forget from John 15, verses 9 through 17, and there's no PowerPoint, so I'll just do my best to communicate it to you. We've been looking at these four pillars of our relationship with God when you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. Four pillars of our relationship with God when you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you. Now, we've looked at the first two pillars in the previous weeks. The first pillar was a relationship established in love. When you abide in Christ and Christ abides in you, he brings you into a relationship and that relationship is established in love. God the Father loves God the Son. God the Son loves you. And you, because of his love for you, are to abide in his love. And so this relationship was established first in love. And then last week we looked at secondly, or the second pillar, that it's a relationship shared in community. In fact, that relationship shared in community is verse 12 This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So it's established in love, but it's shared in the context where you and I are to love one another. And then the third pillar this morning, it is a relationship honored in friendship, okay? Honored in friendship. It's established in love, shared in community, and honored in friendship friendship. Now just so you pick up where the writer John is going, look back at verse 13. He's talking about there the extent of that love. He says in 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In other words, obviously he's talking about the sufficient work, the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He commanded you to love one another in this flock and in the universal church, but in that commandment, it says there in 13 that he laid down his life for his friends. Now the question will arise as you see that word friends, the last word in verse 13 is this question, who are his friends? friends. He laid his life down for his friends, but by definition, who are his friends? Let's pick up the text. Look at verse 14. Jesus said there, you are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, it's qualified. You can see that in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. So let me just mark this. It's honored in friendship, but first, 
those who are, are his friends, obey him willingly. Obey him willingly. Verse 14. You're my friends if you do what I command. Now, this is not new for us. In other words, there's different definitions of friendship. But a friend of Christ is somebody who abides in Christ. And when you abide in Christ, you obey him, not just at a grudging, you know, some grudging attitude. You obey him willingly. In other words, once you're abiding in Christ, you in him, he in you, you obey him willingly. Look back at chapter 15 in verse 10. He says there, does Jesus, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandment and abide in his love. And so as Christ kept the commandments of the father, here we are to obey his commandments, and when you do, you will abide in his love. If you look back at chapter 14, do you remember there in verse 15? Chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, there it is again, you will keep my commandments. Glance down at chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then the opposite in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And so here, this relationship, this pillar is honored in friendship, but it's when you obey him willingly. In fact, the apostle John said that his his commandments are not even burdensome. And so when I ask, are you a friend of Jesus? A friend of Jesus is qualified here. In other words, you understand it's not talking about signing something. It's not talking about confirming something. It's not talking about when you were a child. Here a friend is defined and qualified as somebody who does what the Lord Jesus Christ commands. I mean, I suppose that I would say to you that it's just the opposite when people sin. That is the opposite of obeying him. And certainly this does not mean sinless perfection. But it does mean that the trajectory of your life, the trajectory of it, is obeying his commandments. Do you remember when Samuel, by way of an illustration, rebuked Saul for failing to do what the Lord had commanded Saul. In fact, there, here the prophet said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You know the next phrase. Behold, to obey is better than what? Sacrifice. In other words, that's what our Lord is talking about here. In fact, Samuel said to heed, which is the ideal of obey, than the fat of rams. Listen, beloved, this is just true for us, true for the scripture, true for our valley. You cannot say that you're submitting to him and at the same time rebel against him. In other words, his love laid down his life for his friends who are his friends? His friends are the ones who obey him willingly. 
In fact, you remember the opposite when we studied the book of James together in James chapter 4 and verse 4. That friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And the writer said there, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so here this relationship, you say, what does it mean to abide in him? Well, it's established in love as you saw. It's shared in community. You love one another. But it's honored in friendship and your friendship toward the Lord Jesus Christ is one of obedience. Now, beloved, here at Grace Church of the Valley, this is just true of the New Testament. Believers obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we're even called, prior to Christ, slaves of sin in Romans 6.17. But the Bible there says that we became obedient from the heart. In other words, once we were slaves of sin, but once he redeemed us, we became obedient from the heart. In the Bible, in 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, verse 9, it, it speaks of those who will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And they are those, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so here, abiding in him is to share friendship with him, and this is one who obeys. In fact, Peter defined unbelievers in 1 Peter 4.17 as those who do not obey the gospel of God. In fact, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.1 and 2 that believers were chosen by God to obey uh, Jesus Christ. And so here it's honored in friendship, and I just say, who is a friend of Jesus? Jesus is not just your homeboy, as people say. People say, I have a relationship with Jesus. I have a friendship with Jesus. Me and Jesus are tight. Me and the big one are tight. You can say you're a friend, and you can say you're tight, but really what it comes down to for each of us is, are you obeying him willingly? Is that the passion? Is that the direction? Is that the desire of your heart? Now, this is not the first time someone is called a friend of God in John chapter 15. You remember all the way back in the Old Testament, Abraham, remember that, was called a friend of God. He was called a friend of God back in the Old Testament. He was called a friend of God in James chapter 2 in verse 23. Do you remember that that was the title given to Abraham resulting from his abiding faith in God and his practical obedience demonstrated at Mount Moriah. Remember he was about ready to offer his son, his only son. And remember the thought is in the Hebrew language that his hand was pulled until the Lord spoke out to him and called him and stopped him. But Abraham's faith, which was true in Genesis 15, verse 6, became a growing reality years later in Genesis 22 when he was ready to offer his son. And he was called a friend of God. And so, beloved, the child of God, living in obedience to God's revealed will, is like faithful Abraham who was called a friend of God. This is what it means to be a friend of God. 
It's established in love, right? And here you see it, it's honored in friendship. In fact, I think of another text. Do you remember at one point when our Lord Jesus Christ was in the gospel, is inside a house in Mark chapter 3, and it was told him while he was in the house that his mother and brothers were searching for him. And Jesus asked the question in Mark chapter 3, who are my mothers and brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in that home, he said to those who were inside that house, behold my mother and my brothers. And then Jesus said, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So Abraham obeyed, and that obedience displayed the fruit of his faith. Jesus, in Mark chapter 3, said that the true family is those who do the will of God. So I just want you to know, it'd be enough for me to say, this is conditional. It's conditional. You say, well, what what do you mean conditional? Well, you, you can read it there. You are my friends if you do what I command you. It's conditional. And I believe that there's probably hundreds of thousands of people in our valley who are trusting something other than the fruit being displayed in their life. Jesus said, here, the mark of a friend. I died for my friends, and my friends are the ones who follow me. Now, you know, and I know, I'll check this off, that obedience, of course, to his commands, does not earn our salvation. Salvation, we clearly understand, is solely by grace, through faith, not as a result of what? works so that no one may boast. We understand that. We also understand Paul in the book of Titus when he said, not as the result of works so that no one uh, may boast. That's Paul in Ephesians 2. But he said, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he saved us not on the basis of deeds. We, we understand that. It was Paul who said in Romans 3.20, he said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We understand that. We understand Paul in Romans 3.28, that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So obedience, beloved, that's not misunderstood, is not the means of our salvation, but it is the result. It's not the root of your salvation, but it is the fruit of it. And where there's no compliance willingly to his commands, it would leave one to think, am I his friend? Okay? It is the proof that a person has a saving relationship with Christ. The branches that abide in Christ, the true vine, will inevitably, in this passage, bear fruit. You finish the sentence with me. Jesus said, my sheep hear his voice and they, what? Follow me. You can't just hear his voice 20 years ago. You can't hear his voice, let me, and I'm trying to be practical. 
30 years ago and have nothing to do with this. He says, if you're a believer, if you abide in me and I abide in you, then you're going to bear fruit. In fact, the ones who bear no fruit, you are gathered, burned, and consumed in John 15, 6. So this is not hard to understand. It's honored in friendship. You obey him willingly is the thought. Good works, we understand, save no one, but a faith devoid of them is dead and cannot save. I mean, I pray that even as I speak right there, it would convert some of you. Faith apart from works is useless, James says. Now, it doesn't save you, but there's got to be fruit attached to the root to demonstrate the assurance that you really know him. So here it's honored in friendship, you obey him willingly, but look at the text in verse 15. This is wonderful. He says, no longer do I call you servants, which is an interesting translation in the ESV in 1515. I can translate it for you. No longer do I call you slaves. That's what the word means. They transposed it, if you will, into servants, but in all the places in the New Testament, um, it is translated a slave. He says, no longer do I call you a slave, or here a servant, for the servant, or literally the slave, does not know what his master is doing. He said, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is a wonderful truth. And here we go from you obey him willingly, being honored in friendship, secondly, to you know him intimately. In other words, there's a divine disclosure here. I think you understand the thought and the theme of a slave. And by the way, when I say this as a slave, 150 different times in the New Testament, you're called a slave. And I'm called a slave. Paul likened himself as to a third-level galley slave. We're slaves for Christ. And so that is the thought of it. Believers are called slaves of Christ. And you remember the one parable, the slave ought not to ask, what are you doing or why, give you, why did you give me this command? The, the slave just simply says, I'm doing what my master, that's the word kurios, told me to do. And so a slave in the New Testament was bought that slave was owned, that slave was subjected to, that slave was provided for, and it was protected by his master. And here's the point. He lived in total submission, did that slave, to the will of God, to the will of his master. And I think in that analogy, in that sense, and you would agree with me, there's no relationship there. In other words, if he's Lord, he takes it from the real world of slaves uh, being owned, if you will, by their master. The master simply gives them a command. But, he, but he, he takes us and lifts it above that. And you understand when he's talking about a slave, there's no relationship there. There's no disclosure there. You are given a command and you follow that command. In fact, there's no explanation as to the reason of the command. You just follow in obedience to it. But look at the text again in verse 15. He says, but I have called you, what? Friends. Listen, if anything, as you walk out even this morning, 
If you're in Christ, you are a friend of God. You are a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, yes, we're identified as slaves, but another title, another description is this, is that you are a friend. And and what's amazing in this is that the Lord has the right to require obedience of me and of you, you would agree, but he graciously and marvelously and wonderfully reveals his purpose to you. This is what he's saying to the disciples. He's confiding in you. He's sharing secrets with you. He's sharing mysteries with you. In fact, look at the text in verse 15. He said, for all that I have heard, Jesus said, from my father, he says, I have made known to you. In other words, if you're a friend, you not only obey him willingly from the heart, but you know him intimately because he's disclosed himself to you. In fact, in one place in the gospel, he says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Listen, if you're a child of God, you are a friend of God, and it's been revealed to you by the Spirit the mysteries of the kingdom. Do you remember that other place in the gospel where Jesus would pull his disciples aside and said, but blessed are your eyes. For though they do not see, you see. And you have language that way. Let me just say to you, Grace Church of the Valley, what a privilege. What a privilege is ours. Jesus Christ, as he called Abraham his friend, in the New Testament calls you you who are his children friends. Listen, you're on the inside group. He is giving away his truth. He's giving away, if you will, his secrets. He's enabling you to comprehend what the former believers could not grasp in the Old Testament. In other words, there's something new. There's something elevated. There's something superior in the new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. Do you remember when Peter said something like this concerning salvation? The prophets, the prophets prophesied about the grace was that was to be yours. They searched. He says they inquired carefully. They inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating uh, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, those prophets pinned the Scripture, not understanding the full gamut of salvation, not even understanding where those prophets, how this would all work out. It was, it was revealed to them in 1 Peter 1 that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you. He says, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven to which Peter says things uh, into which the angels long to look. Do you realize that there was a time in the Old Testament that the angels were longing to look into the unfolding revelation of God? And I'm saying you're holding that in your hands. So watch this. He no longer calls you a slave. He no longer calls you a servant because the servant and the slave doesn't know what his master's doing. 
What's unique here is as you obey him willingly, you know him intimately, and through the spirit and through the word of God, he is disclosing to you the mind and the heart and the plan and the purpose of God. It's unbelievable. He gives that to you. It's there enclosed in the word of God. In fact, look over in the book of Romans just for a second. Let me show you a text there in Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, at the doxology there in verse 25, there's tucked away there a wonderful, wonderful scripture, a wonderful closing doxology. In Romans 16 verse 25, Paul finishes there. It sounds like Jude a little bit. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according, and then he uses this phrase, to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, it was history. It was, it was a mystery, excuse me. It was hidden in times past. You know, when he uses that word there, he uses that word mystery, the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You know, there were times, certainly the Old Testament is clear, but as Peter talked about, the prophets were searching, they were inquiring. What about the sufferings of Christ? What would be the time when he would come at the fullness of time? And so things in the Word of God were a mystery in the Old Testament, waiting for the coming of Christ. But now it speaks of the revelation of that mystery that was kept for, uh, in secret for long ages. In other words, you intimately know him. This is one of the blessings about being a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that word mystery is used in the New Testament. It refers to those things that were hidden in the past but now revealed in Jesus and revealed to the apostles and now to all believers. And by the way, let me just say there, these were mysteries hidden that have been now uh, revealed to us. We don't need more truth. We do not need more revelation. He has revealed everything we need to know pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus Christ gave the apostles his written revelation. They penned it for us. He left us with the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13 that we know now. It talks about the mystery of Israel's hardening in Romans 11. It talks about in the book of Ephesians the mystery of the gospel. It talks in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 about the mystery of the rapture. It talks in Ephesians 1, 9, the mystery of God's will. These are all things that you can know. It talks about the mystery of the Jews and Gentiles being one body, Ephesians 3. It talks in Ephesians 5, the mystery of the union of Christ and the church. It talks about the mystery of Christ indwelling inside the life of a believer, Corinthians chapter 1. It talks about the Messiah would be God incarnate in the flesh, Colossians 2.2. It talks about the mystery of lawlessness revealed in the person of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And so here is what it means, at least this. You obey him willingly 
and you know him intimately. Do you know him? Would you be classified as a friend this morning? We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. He is the greatest friend, and he is better than any sorrow. He is better than any comfort. He is better than all riches. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, and rather treating us like a servant or a slave, he treats you as a friend, and he discloses himself to you. This is what a leader does. This is what a discipler of men does. This is what a discipler of, a, of women does. They disclose truth to you. Nothing's a secret to them. They give away their life. They give away the truth. And how better exemplified than the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there might be a question that comes. How did we become his friends? <laughs> that, that would be the question as you go back in John. How did you and I become his friends? He calls us friends, but lest pride creep into your sinful heart, my sinful heart, I, I, the Lord lets us know that the promises that he gives to us, calling us friends, are not grounded in our own choice of him, but actually his choice of us. So it's a relationship shared in friendship, but the fourth and final pillar is this. It's a relationship that's grounded in sovereignty. It's grounded in sovereignty. Look at verse 16, the wonderful statement. Maybe you've seen this for years in Christ, but uh, few churches maybe are expositing the scripture, and we come to it now. Jesus said in verse 16, you did not choose me, he said in verse 16, but I, what? I chose you. No, it's grounded in sovereignty. In other words, this is the clear teaching of the word of God. You know, there's some things that are hard to understand in the Bible. There's some things with all my years of Greek, multiple years, my years of Hebrew, there's things in grammar that sometimes are difficult to quite understand the nuance of the word. Sometimes as you teach the Bible, there's difficulty in history. There's difficulty in putting uh, the language together, the manuscripts together, truth together. Even was it not Peter who said there's some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand? We understand that. But here he's going to talk about divine election. And I just want to say to you, this is not one of those. It's not hard to understand. You read it with me. Look at it again in verse 16. You did not choose me, okay, but I chose you, okay? Now, there's two important features that you need to understand here on this pillar that's grounded in sovereignty. First is that he chose you sovereignly. He chose you sovereignly. The term there is just a... A Greek term, it's ekloge or eklego. It just means that he chose you. And you can see that there. This is not hard to grasp. This is what we call the doctrine of election. You're his friend this morning. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. I obey him willingly from my heart. He has shared truth intimately with us. He no longer calls you his slave. He calls you his friend. But here's the teaching of scripture is that he chose you. He, says, he said, you did not choose me. That's negative. Positively, 
uh, you chose, he says, I chose you. In other words, if you're his friend, this is, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a serious doctrine, but you didn't volunteer for this, okay? The Lord says, I chose you. Now, there's no confusion here. I chose you. Now, it's interesting that he brings together both human responsibility, well, you're my friends if you do what I command, but he brings together divine responsibility, and he often does this together. In other words, those who willingly obey are his friends. Those who do not obey the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, they're facing the wrath of God. But he comes right back here in divine sovereignty and says, I chose you. And in fact, look over at John chapter 17, and we'll just touch on this this morning. Look at the language there. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said there in 17 verse 6, I have manifested your name, speaking to God, praying to God the Father, to the people, here it is, whom you gave me out of the world. You can underline that. He's praying to God whom you gave me out of the world. You are a love gift from God the Father to God the Son. Look at verse 6 there. Yours they were, and here it is again, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In other words, the Father gave to the Son a love gift, and that love gift is his children. Do you remember what he said in John 6, 44? That no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is divine sovereignty. In other words, you are no longer a slave. You are no longer an enemy, Romans chapter 5. You are a friend and you didn't even volunteer for this. He chose you. He chose you. You say, but Scott, I believed in him. Yes? But he gave you the faith to believe in him. You say, but Scott, I willingly laid down my life. And I would say, yes. And he made you willing to lay your life down. This is a, this is a deep truth of the scripture. But Jesus said there... You did not choose me, but I chose you. This goes all the way back. Would you look in the book of Deuteronomy just for a second? This is not only the New Testament. You know this. Go all the way back on this sovereign election. We say that it's unconditional in the sense that he chose you as a gift of his grace. There was nothing you can do upon it. There was no effort. There was no merit. There were no deeds. God Almighty gave to the Son a love gift. That love gift was you. Look at Deuteronomy 7. It's all over the scripture. He's talking about a chosen people in Deuteronomy 7. Obviously, it's the nation of Israel. And why did he choose the nation of Israel? Look at chapter 7, verse 6. He said, for you are a people, chapter 7, verse 6, that are holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God, here's the word, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And here he qualifies it in seven. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are actually the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, a, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And so there, it was the choosing of the Lord that he chose Israel. Look over in Deuteronomy chapter 10. There's another strong statement there of a sovereignty made. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14. Behold, 10:14, to the Lord your God, we understand this, belong heaven and the heaven or belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Now this. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are in this day. But then he told them in 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and, no, and be no longer stubborn. stubborn. So there's divine sovereignty, but there's human responsibility. And so here the Lord chose them for salvation. In the New Testament, he has chosen us for salvation. I mean, is there any of you here this morning just reading Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy chapter 10, that you would say that Israel chose God? I mean, I think we would, no, no, we can't say that. Not only in Deuteronomy, it's all over in other places. No, 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 that's nowhere to be found anywhere in the New Testament, nor is it found in the Old Testament. He sovereignly chose Israel. I mean, is there any here this morning who would congratulate yourself on your salvation? I mean, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Is there anybody here who would say, it was my faith? Is there anybody here this morning who would say, it was my repentance? Is there anybody who would say, it was my doing? That's nowhere to be found. No, no, no. You'd probably say with me that you thank God from the depth of your heart because your salvation is a miracle. Right? I mean, all I know is I was a pagan kid growing up in the San Fernando Valley, never even heard of the person of Jesus Christ, and God sovereignly had me in his mind before the foundation of the world. In fact, this is what the scripture says in Ephesians 1.4. I'm just, if you're arguing with me, it says this, that he chose us in him before what? The foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. So listen, there's some things that are hard to understand in the scripture. This is not one of them. We believe we teach the sovereignty of God. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to tell those if you're not in Christ to believe and to repent. But here he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. We can quote together Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace... You have been, what? Saved. It's God's grace. You say, well, uh, pastor, why would he give me grace? Well, there's nothing in you that would make him give you his grace. There's not that he looked down on you and thought you're better, just like he didn't look down on Israel and say you're better. He, in fact, the writer said you're actually the fewest of all peoples, but God looked down and chose them and gave them a promise, and God looked down on you and chose you is what it says by grace not by your merit, you have been saved through faith. And remember the next phrase, at least in the ESV, this is not your own doing. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about the faith. You have to read it as the antecedent. So I don't know if you've ever read it that way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, lock on faith, comma, and that is not your own doing. In other words, beloved, he gave you faith as a gift. He gave you repentance as a gift. In fact, it says, I should let the Bible say it, you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a what? A gift of God. If anything, just walk out this morning humbled. (laughs) Exalt the sovereignty of God. He just wants to make sure pride doesn't creep up in your heart. You're a friend if you obey him willingly. Oh, he reveals his truth to you intimately. But remember here, it's grounded in his sovereignty, and you didn't volunteer for this. He selected you. He chose you. Maybe that's enough to say that he appointed you to bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. And so he's called you even into mission here. In fact, one of my favorite scriptures is James 1.18, and don't worry if I didn't get, you could, you could uh, email my administrative assistant, Brenna, and she'll just send you my notes. But I love James 1.18, where it says, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, you didn't raise yourself up by your bootstraps. Of his own will, he brought us forth. And the ideal of there brought us forth, you remember, is that he regenerated you. He brought us forth by... I always think that that's one of my favorite phrases in the scripture. He brought us forth. He regenerated. You say, how does he do that? He does that by the word of truth. That's how he does it. In fact, a guy said to me a couple of weeks ago, he was a pastor visiting. Um, he said, how, how, what, what's going on in this place? I think what he was saying. It's like, well, how did you do this? He, said, he was actually saying that to me. And uh, I'm like, I didn't do anything. We haven't done anything. It's the power of the word of God. When you go out this morning, there's a baptismal tank to my left, your right, just right outside the auditorium. We're going to have baptism today. God's word is redeeming people, amen? He's bringing people forth, and he uses this, the word of truth, to cause regeneration to come out. Remember when Paul told the Corinthians, just remember this as we're thinking about it's grounded in sovereignty. When he said, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about not, to bring to nothing things that are, and then this, comma, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You say, well, Scott, I, okay, he chose me. Well, uh, what about the other people? Preach the word. Throw the seed. Cast the soil. We don't know whom God's elect are, but all I know this is Jesus said, you didn't choose me. He said, I chose you. The entire panorama of salvation from start to finish is God choosing you. He's glorified. He is exalted. And I say this, you are humbled. You say, well, Scott, explain that to me. How does it work between human responsibility and divine sovereignty? I don't know. But I know it's true. I know it's true. 
And so that helps me that I don't have to come up with, uh, I'm smiling, any gimmick here. In fact, the pastor asked me, how'd you get all these young kids here? I said, I don't know. Our families are prolific, some of them, you know. And, uh, but God's putting something together in his sovereign plan. And being in Mexico, there's pastors coming from all over the state of Sinaloa that, that they want to be trained. They want to love his word. They want God to, to be honored. But he's using his word. But listen, all we have to do is let this book speak. We don't need a special program. We don't need a special gimmick. He's redeeming people. And plus two, it helps when you know that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I'll get on a plane. You say, well, how does that work practically? Okay, I'll tell you how that practically works. If, if you're going to be a missionary, then, then go somewhere like where uh, my son Johnny was. He called me from the airport. I said, where have you been? <laughs> he works up at Hume. He said he's been in Nepal. He, he flew all the way over into Nepal, landed in Nepal, then got a short little plane and then went another number of hours, then got off the plane with six guys in Nepal, hiked 15 hours up into the high mountains in the high country, and in that place, there's a revival going on in Nepal up in those high mountains. You say, well, how's that revival going on? Because I think God has his elect all over the place, doesn't he? In fact, how encouraging is it to know that he sovereignly chose people before the foundation of the world. The missionary gets to go in and reap what God has already done. You just have to open your mouth and speak the word. And so it's great encouragement when you believe actually in the sovereignty of God. But he is glorified. He is exalted. We are humbled. So first, under this section, he chose you sovereignly. And secondly, and finally, he commissioned you purposefully purposefully. He commissioned you purposefully. You say, where is that? Verse 16. Look at this. He chose you, Jesus said, and he appointed you. Now, obviously, he's talking here in the text to the disciples, but I believe it goes beyond that, as we'll see in his high priestly prayer. But he appointed them. He appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And so he commissioned you purposefully. He commissioned you, look at, particularly in verse 16, that you should, what does it say there? Go. Here's another reference to the Great Commission. In other words, he redeemed you, and you in this building are going. It's what we call a present subjunctive. You are in the way of going. Listen, you are a church. You are a people. You are a family on mission. I mean, what the, what the heck if you think he redeemed you from before the foundation of the world? He chose you as a family, as a father, as a mommy, as a single purpose, a single person, and puts you in mission, and he appointed you, verse 16, that you should go as you're going, right? In Matthew 28, you're bearing what? Fruit. In other words, pray as you wake up every day, God, use me. God, God, use me in this place. In other words, it's attitude, fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, but you're bearing fruit, there's action fruit as well. But I really lean towards what the scholar D.A. Carson said. What do you mean bear fruit? I mean, you saw bearing fruit. Look at back at chapter 15, verse 2, just for a second. Remember, he talks about bearing fruit all over there. But the bearing fruit clearly, I think, primarily, 
as new converts, okay? New converts. In other words, he's called us to be able to share the good news. So this is amazing. He calls you sovereignly, but he commissions you purposefully that you would go, that you would bear fruit, and the fruit would be in new converts, that you would bear fruit in ministry, that you would see that fruit come as a result. Look at verse 16, that whatever you ask in my name, he may give it to you. Here the fruit is a result of dependent prayer on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, it's grounded in sovereignty. There's ministry here. You need to go. There's mission here. You need to bear fruits. And then the means is here. You need to be in a spirit of prayer that you and I would be dependent on him to fulfill his plan for all of us.